So have you ever been given a compliment? Have you ever given a compliment? People around the world this week have mourned the death of boxing great Muhammad Ali. One reporter of the Nashville Post, David Beauclair, recalled a time 30 years ago when the champ gave him what he referred to as a compliment. Beauclair was one of a handful of journalists that got kind of a a private interview time with Muhammad Ali, and and they were sitting there together in this small room and asking questions when, when suddenly the champ stood up and started doing magic tricks. I was like, I think it is. And his last magic trick that he did was some kind of levitation thing where it looked like he hovered off the ground for like a second or two. And so after he got through with his trick, he, he looked over at David Beauclair and he, he pointed at him and he said, hey, what do you think about that? And Beauclair was a, a young journalist, so he said the first thing that came to his mind, he looked at the champ and he said, you're the greatest. And the champ smiled and looked back at him and said, you know what? You aren't as stupid as you look. (laughs) That was the compliment that David Beauclair says 30 years later he remembers the most. Some compliment, right? You're not as stupid as you look. Kind of like the husband that told his wife, you know what, babe? You're the best at making cereal. Man, you're fantastic. Or like the boss that told his employee, look, we've decided to give you a a 6% raise in appreciation. So... Nice haircut, Andy. Looks really good. You'll get that after lunch. They didn't give him money. They just gave him a compliment. You always got to take a chance with one of them. Author and humorist Mark Twain once had a whole different look on the aspect of what it means to have a compliment. He said this, I have been complimented many times and they will always embarrass me. I always feel they have not said enough. So that's one way to look at compliments. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's probably how we often think and feel. We don't feel like we're complimented enough. Our spouse and our parents and our kids, they don't pat us on the back enough. We, we need more compliments. Our math teacher doesn't write in red ink on the side, great partial credit, enough on our tests and our quizzes. Our boss doesn't compliment us enough for going the extra mile, even though we might be running the wrong mile and forgetting to do our actual work. The lady at the coffee shop, she she doesn't say great job to us when we order our coffee in about seven seconds instead of the guy who was in front of us that took seven minutes asking her about every single thing on the menu with this question. Hey, so what does that taste like? That's from personal experience. In 1865, in a letter to publisher and politician Thurlow Weed, Abraham Lincoln wrote a very simple sentence and probably a universally true sentence when he said, everyone likes a compliment. That's true, right? Everybody does like a compliment. So, what is the highest compliment you can give to someone else? And what's the highest compliment that you can receive from someone else? Well, let's find out. Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 27. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. So the scene here is interesting. Jesus has just cast out a demon. 
And there's some people in the crowd that said, ah, yeah, but you did that by the power of Satan. And Jesus responds to them and says, well, that just doesn't make any sense. Why would Satan send one of his own people to get rid of one of his best homes and give it away for free? That doesn't make sense. Some other folks in the crowd, they said, well, you know, Jesus, that was really cool. That was an amazing miracle. But if I'm going to believe your message, you're going to have to do better than that. You're going to have to give me a little more than just that. And Jesus responds to them, and he says, you know what? The heavyweight champion looks really strong until someone else steps in the ring. And they fight, and they beat the champ, and they take away the belt. And there's no rematch because the new champ is the champ for all eternity. See, that's Jesus. That, that's a real champion when you're a champion for all eternity. And so Jesus has some accusers. He's got some, some sign seekers, and, and they're kind of stirring up a little bit of trouble. And he just graciously rebuffs and refutes what they have to say. He dismisses their misplaced desires and their prideful desires. And in the middle of all of that that's going on, suddenly this woman shouts out. She, she goes against the grain of the accusers. She goes against the grain of the sign seekers. And she just shouts out loud in the crowd, Honey, your mama must be so proud. Or something along those lines. You see, in, in ancient times, if you wanted to give someone a compliment, you would say something really, really nice about their mom. And so this woman here is honoring Jesus by saying something very nice about his mom. And in this scene, what she is doing has a little bit of courage to it. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about the woman. A woman, your courage deserves our praise and our imitation. We will go to school to you to learn your bravery. Oh, that we had a fire in our hearts burning as it did in yours. Then would it consume the bonds which hold our stammering tongues. Let us believe that when the current of thought around us runs in a wrong direction, such is the power of enthusiasm that one earnest, impassioned voice may turn it and our Lord may yet win glory where now he is despised. That's good. Think about the scene of the world that we live in. We live in a world that is not moving quickly to lift up the glory of God. In fact, in most corners, he is despised. And yet here, we look at this one woman and this one crowd, and we see the example to follow. One enthusiastic, impassioned voice for the gospel. One voice for the glory of God. Don't ever underestimate what you might do for God's glory at your kitchen table. Don't ever underestimate what you might do for the glory of God in your car on the way to vacation. Don't ever underestimate what you might do for the glory of God at work, at school, or anywhere else, maybe even in the line at the store. Enthusiastic and passion voices for Jesus make a difference. We have a voice. Let us look at this woman and follow her example. So she says, you know what? Your mom, she's blessed. She's happy. She's honored. And she's right. What do the angels say to Mary? The announcement is coming. The angel comes to Mary and tells her all about the Messiah, all about Jesus. And she says, you know what? God says you are highly favored. You have found favor with God. 
You know, you can't pick up favor at a kiosk at the mall, you know. The favor of God is not something you find in aisle 14 at the home improvement store. The favor of God is amazing and stunning. And the favor that Mary received, it's only been given one time. Just just once. This favor was a one-shot deal. And so, yes, this woman is completely right in what she says to Jesus and what she says to this crowd. Mary was blessed. She was favored. And she should be highly honored more than any other human being that we know, the highest compliment we could give to her. Why? Well, because Mary carried Emmanuel. Mary carried Emmanuel so that Emmanuel could come into this world and save people like me and save people like you. You see, there's no mother, past, present, or future, that can ever remotely make a connection with who Mary is and what Mary experienced. You see, Mary's pregnancy, it was planned before the foundations of the world. Mary's pregnancy, it was predicted hundreds of years before she was even born. Mary's pregnancy and all the the beauty of what it is, it was announced to her in person by an angel. I've got four kids. That never happened with us, all right? Mary's pregnancy did not happen through natural intimacy. It happened through supernatural initiative. And Mary's pregnancy did not end, did not culminate with another life suddenly being in the room. Mary's pregnancy culminated with God suddenly being in the world in human form. Yeah, Mary had favor. Mary was blessed. J.C. Ryle says this, no woman was ever so highly honored as the mother of our Lord. And why? Was it because Mary was great? Nope. Mary was barely a teenager. She didn't come from a, a rich and famous family. She was just a girl. Kent Hughes put it this way, Mary was a nobody from a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. That's Mary. So if that's true, why was she honored with the greatest pregnancy ever? Well, it wasn't random. It wasn't by chance. God chose her. God set his favor. He set his grace upon Mary. And Mary needed that grace because Mary suffered. She suffered physically through the natural aspects of childbirth. But she suffered emotionally. She suffered socially. She was vilified. She was mocked. She was ignored. She was cut off from people that loved her the most. Mary suffered. She needed God's grace. She needed God's favor. And she clung to it. She pulled it close. She trusted God. She was faithful to God. She was blessed, and we should honor her. But we should not worship her. Why? Well, Jesus is about to give us a pretty good reason. But before Jesus was born, somebody else gave us a pretty clear reason why we should not worship Mary. And who was that other person? Well, the other person was actually Mary. In Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46, Mary sang these words, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed, for the Mighty One 
has done great things for me. And holy is his name. See, Mary knew God. Mary knew who God was. Mary knew that all this she was experiencing was not because of her, not because she was great, not because there was something fantastic about her. She knew that even though she used her own pronouns in her little song, her little song was primarily to say, I'm the one who received all of this, this crazy, stunning, amazing grace from God. See, Mary knew that God wasn't just holy. She knew that only God was holy. See, Mary knew that only God, and she believed that only God was holy, holy, holy. That only God was other, other, other. That's what holy means, other. There's, there's no one like him. By the evidence of her life, by the evidence of her own words, Mary kept the first commandment. She didn't have another God, including one in the mirror. She knew to worship God and worship God alone, and that is what she did with her life. So this woman in this crowd, she honors Jesus by giving a huge shout out to Mary. And so how does Jesus respond? What does Jesus say to this woman in response to her compliment that she gives? Look at verse 28. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. At first glance, it sounds like Jesus is kind of rebuking her, you know. Like Jesus purposely never acknowledged Mother's Day. You know, he didn't, uh, don't like moms, no. That's not what he's doing. He's not saying that he didn't love his mom. He's not saying that his mom is not important. What Jesus is doing is what he always does. He's trying to get us to step back just a little bit and catch the bigger picture. Catch the, the higher and the wider and the more majestic view of God's grace and God's mercy and God's love. It's as if he looks over at this woman and he goes, you know what, you're right. My mom, she is blessed. She is highly favored. God God has been uniquely good to my mom. And my mom has been so faithful to God. And my mom has been a fantastic mom to me. But you don't need to be my mom to get blessed. You don't need to be a blood relative of mine to be blessed. You don't have to literally trace your your earthly genealogy back to my earthly family tree to be blessed. No, Jesus looks at the woman and he says, blessed is the person who hears God's word and does it. That is the highest compliment you could ever get. And it's the highest compliment you could ever give. Blessed is the one who hears God's word and does it. Hearing the word of God is not just listening to a sermon, though. It's not just listening to a Sunday school lesson or listening to a Bible study. It's not just listening to to preaching on the radio, driving down the road. It's more than just listening to the Bible. And it's more than just reading the Bible. But listening and reading are kind of a good start. They're kind of a big deal. There's about 321 million people in the United States. About 150 million of them live east of the Mississippi River. So about half the population east of the Mississippi. So Mississippi all the way up to Wisconsin, all the way over to the Atlantic Ocean. So about 150 million people there. Now I want you to imagine those 150 million people, and then let's throw in Texas too. Texas has about 27 million people. 
So about 177 million people, including all the people in our state. Now I want you to imagine that many people do not have access to a Bible that they can hear and read in their own language. Wycliffe Bible Translators estimates there's 100 many peop- 180 million people in the world that do not have access to a Bible that they can hear or read in their own language. So, so what you have already done in the first few minutes here this morning, you are already more blessed than 180 million people. <laughs> hey, if you're having a bad day, I just gave you a blessing right there. You are more blessed than 180 million people right now who have no access to God's Word. Now, the reason that's such fantastic news is because of what the Bible tells us. See, the Bible says that hearing the Word of God allows you to hear that you can be saved and rescued and redeemed from the penalty of sin. Well, what is sin? Well, sin is breaking God's law. Well, how do we know what God's law is? Well, we know God's law because we find it in the Bible. Now, someone might say, eh, you know, the Bible. Good book, but you know, it's an old book. I mean, it, it's not relevant to today. It, it, it really hasn't made its way into the modern world. We, we can't use it now because things have changed and things are different. This is what the Bible says about itself. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. All right, so what's the opposite of living and active? I just picked a couple of words. Let's go with dead and sluggish, all right? Dead and sluggish. So the Guinness Book of World Records says that the Bible is the best-selling book of all time, with over 5 billion copies sold and distributed. Now, Others say that there's other books that have sold just as many, if not more, copies. All right, let's just go with that. All right, so at the very least, we could say that the Bible is at least in the top three of the best-selling books of all time and more than five billion copies sold and distributed. That doesn't sound dead and sluggish to me. Even just a a common-sense look at the Bible reveals to us that the Bible is not a dead book. It's not a a sluggish book. There's something with this book. It's still selling like hotcakes. So what is it about this book? See, the Bible's living. The Bible's active. Right now in this room, the Bible is working. Right now down the street at State Street Baptist Church, the Bible is working. Across town at New Spring Baptist, New Spring, not Baptist, New Spring Church, the Bible's working. At the Presbyterian Church, or the Episcopal Church, anywhere that a Bible, the copy of God's Word, is being used correctly today, the Bible is working. Halfway across the world, in a jail cell, maybe scribbled on a wall, just a few words of Scripture, they're working. The Bible is not a dead book. The Bible is not a sluggish book. The Bible is alive. It's working. It's active. Someone might say, okay, five billion copies, fine. It's all over the place. A lot of people have it. But, but there's other books that have sold a lot of books. So what makes the Bible so special? I love what Jeff Thomas says about this. The more you read the Bible, the more you become convinced that the men who wrote it were not writing for themselves. They had no great genius. They were not creative literary masters. 
If they had used their own poor inventive powers, if they had rationalized and philosophized according to their own limited insights, they would have spoiled the story. They were just simple men. And by their own confession, they were sinful men too. The greatness of their work lies not in themselves, but rather in the one who moved them to write, the Spirit of God. There is no other way to account for this holy book. It's not a dead book. It's not a sluggish book. It's not a somewhat historical book. It's not just a a novella of mythical proportions. It's not just some ideas that some Middle Eastern dudes came up with 2,000 years ago just because they were really hyper-religious. The Bible, according to everything about it, is a living and active book. It is the Word of God. The Bible displays God's perfect law. And the Bible reveals to us that sin is breaking God's law. So, who has sinned? Well, all of us. In fact, every single person who's ever lived in history, all have broken God's law in some way, shape, or form. So what's the penalty that comes with sin? Well, the penalty is separation from God today and then separation from God forever. So what does that mean? Well, it means that you will be separated from perfect peace forever. You'll be separated from perfect love forever. You'll be separated from perfect joy forever. You'll be separated from perfect happiness forever. And the whole aspect of separation means that that you're here and something else is over there. So if if you're separated from God, if if God is over there, then then, then where are you? This is how Jesus describes in, in some language what it means to be separated from God. Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and they gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You don't see that in a greeting card every day, do you? Now, someone would say, ah, my Jesus is love. And he would never say anything like that. Jesus said things like this all the time. In fact, if you start taking these kind of things out of the biography of Jesus, you're going to end up with a a long-haired hippie dude who, like, made wooden cots for homeless people and and little toy boats for kids, and that's about all you're going to have. See, Jesus spoke strongly. He spoke hard stuff. But don't miss this. The hard stuff is what makes the good stuff so great. The hard stuff is what makes the gospel so fantastic. Because, see, the gospel tells us that anyone can be saved. Anyone. There's not a a single person on this planet that can't receive salvation from God. There's not a a single person on this planet that can't be rescued away from the penalty of sin. Doesn't matter what side of the tracks you grew up on. Doesn't matter if if you're filthy rich or if you're dirty poor. 
It doesn't matter if your skin is white or black or yellow or if you have a spray-on tan. It just really doesn't matter. The Bible tells us that if you can live in the United States or you can live in Iraq or you can live in Iran, you can live in Russia and you can still be saved. The Bible tells us someone with a Ph.D. can get saved and someone who hasn't even finished ninth grade can be saved. The Bible tells us that a lazy, immoral drunk can be saved. And the Bible tells us that an active, moral churchgoer can be saved. The Bible says a Democrat can be saved and a Republican can be saved. Anyone can be saved. This is how Paul said it to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 10. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. No matter what you have done, no matter what you haven't done, no matter what you are doing right now, anyone can be saved. Whoever means whoever. There is no one left out of God's scope. There's no one left out of God's mercy. So if you are not a Christian, I plead with you, listen to Paul's words. And right now, call on the name of the Lord and be saved, be rescued, be redeemed. Have the happiness and the satisfaction that only comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus is not an anonymous first responder. When he rescues you, he rescues you with purpose. When Jesus saves you and rescues you, he looks you dead in the eyes and he says in a commanding way, in a demanding way, he calls you, follow me. That's the call that comes with salvation. And how does he say that here? This is how he says it. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Blessed are the ones that that hear God's word and and do it. I'm super, super glad that you're here. Super, super glad that you are in this place and listening to God's word. But listening to a sermon is, is not just the call of the gospel. There is a call to obey. There is a call to do. You have to do something with the truth that you hear. Thomas Manton wrote, doers are the best hearers. I love that. If you're doing, then then you're going to listen. My experience over the last 21 years in ministry and and the last 30 some odd years of being a Christian is that the people that fight against God the most are the ones that just will not listen to his word. They just, they're just always are, are saying, God, it's just not that important. But, but hearers are the best doers, and doers are the best hearers. There's this picture of, of taking what we know about God and, and doing something with it. But why should we do that? Look at what Spurgeon said. Active obedience is present enjoyment. Active obedience is present enjoyment. So let me do the math. Let me do it with a question. You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you want to be happy? (laughs) Good. All right. How many of you want to have joy in your life? I know nobody really wants that. But the reality is what we see is that joy in your life is strategically connected to being saved. Because if you're not saved by Jesus, then you perish without Jesus. And that's not joyful. That's, That's not happy. But it's not just salvation. Your joy, your happiness in life is strategically connected to your obedience of what you know and hear 
about God's Word. Active obedience is present enjoyment. Joy comes through obedience. There's a woman who came up to the pastor after church one Sunday after the sermon. She said, Pastor, that sermon was phenomenal. It was so good. Everything you said perfectly applies to someone else that I know. Look, if you're a a pass-the-buck sermon listener, if you you say, man, that was great, that was so good, I wish so-and-so was here. Or I wish so-and-so next to me, you know, was listening. Listen, if if you're always passing off God's word and thinking, man, I wish the president would listen to this. I wish our politicians would listen to this. I wish my spouse would listen to this. If that's where your mind always goes first, listen, you will not be blessed. You will not be happy. You will not experience joy because you'll always be pushing God's word away from you. And you don't want to do that. One more thought from Spurgeon. Hug the truth of God to your souls. Think about the best hug that you've ever gotten. I mean, I know you've got one in your mind. Maybe it was the last hug of someone that you loved. Maybe, maybe someone this week gave you a, a well-timed hug. Think of, the, think of the best hug that you can remember and then try to transfer that into your own life of hugging God's truth, clinging to God's truth. And why would you do that? Listen, You may not know it, you may not understand it, you may not admit it, you might want to ignore it, deny it, or reject it, but what your soul wants the most is the truth of God. It's what your soul wants. The biggest atheist on the planet wants the truth of God in their soul, but they are fighting hard against it. And the reason I know is because God said our souls were created for him. We're created to love and enjoy God. Hold the truth of God. Cling to it, to your soul. Out there on the worldwide interweb, there is a site that will give you a daily odd compliment. Yeah, daily odd compliment. This was one of the daily odd compliments that was given one day. You're like a hug, that lasts longer than it should, but it doesn't enter that awkward stage where you're like, okay, that's enough now. It's more like, I did not expect this much love. I think that's kind of what Jesus is saying to this woman. You know, you're right. My mom, she's blessed. She's favored. My mom gives fantastic hugs. But the truth of God existed before my mom. And the truth of God existed before the foundations of the world. And Jesus looks at her with grace and love and says, and the truth of God will exist forever and ever and ever. And so the person who draws that truth to their soul and clings to that truth, their soul begins to say over and over again about the truth of God, man, I just did not expect this much mercy. I just did not expect this much grace. I did not expect this much love. Jesus says that comes from the truth of God.
let us hug that truth to our souls.